This is David Tarkington. Thank you for downloading this sermon. For more information about our church, First Baptist Church of Orange Park, and our network, the First Family Network, go to firstfam.org. You can check out my site at davidtarkington.com. You know, it's interesting. I, I spent 20 years of my life apart from Christ. I didn't come to be a believer until I was 21. That's 20 Easter's. Most of which I had my back turned against him, and I was happy to live my life according to my standards and my will. Most of the Easter services I attended as an as a older teenager, I did because my mom asked me to go to church. I can probably, I think I even know of two or three that I sat in the Lord's church with a hangover. That's why Easter means so much to me. Because God saved us out of a life like that. I was baptized on Easter when I was 21. Easter is important because we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And I think we're here tonight on Good Friday to remember what Jesus went through so we could celebrate his resurrection. If you have a Bible and you have it with you tonight, the words will be on the screen. Open the Bible up to Matthew chapter 27. I have verse 46. In order for us to best understand what Jesus did for us in raising from the dead, I want to take you back to Matthew 27, verse 46. It reads, in about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lema sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? If we're really going to understand what Jesus did for us on the cross, I have to take you way back to the beginning. I have to take you back to before the beginning. Back to John 1, 1. So flip your Bibles back, if you, if you don't mind, to John 1.1. 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. This is an important verse for our doctrine as believers, but it tells us two important things about Jesus, who exists as the Word. First, you have to learn that Jesus existed as the Word from before the beginning. Eternally, He was not created. He always is, He always has been, and He always will be. He existed with God. Meaning Jesus and God were two separate beings in a perfect relationship. Unified. It also says that He is God. Meaning at the same time, they share in their perfect relationship the Godhead with the Holy Spirit as what we understand as the Trinity. Jesus existed with God since forever. And now on this fateful day, Jesus comes to fulfill His purpose. He's hanging on that cross. And He cries out to God, My God, My God, why have You forsaken Me? Why? Why does Jesus cry out to God the Father and ask Him why He's forsaken Him? Paul gives us the answer in 2 Corinthians 5.21. He made Him to be sin 
who knew no sin. Because in those final moments, as Jesus hangs on the cross, He receives the sin of the world. That's your sin, that's my sin, that's the sin of the world. Jesus, who is the Lamb of God, who came to take away the sin of the world in those final moments of His life, becomes sin. And for the first time in Jesus' entire existence ever, His relationship with the Father is broken. He's separated and alone. Most of His family had forsaken Him. Most of His friends had forsaken Him. Most of His countrymen had forsaken Him and handed Him over to be beaten, mutilated, and nailed to a cross. And now in these last moments, as He's prepared to do what the Father sent Him to do, He who knew no sin becomes sin for us. And for the first time ever, Jesus is alone. And He did it for you. That's why Easter is such a special thing to celebrate. And now as we continue to prepare our hearts for the resurrection, I want to invite my friend, Brian Hoffman, to come and continue sharing from the Word of God. And says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. You see, the words of Christ teach us at least two things here. One is that the guilt of humanity is great, but that the forgiveness of God is even greater. See, the forgiveness of God is rooted in the grace of God. One author said that forgiveness assumes grace. Grace gives us something we don't deserve. Hence why forgiveness has the word give in it. That it's not getting even, instead it's giving away the right to get even. And Christ, as a victim here, He is a victim in the purest sense of the word. He, of any victim in the history of humanity, has every right to get even. But on the cross, He relinquishes that right. He displays the forgiveness that He spoke of when He said in the Sermon on the Mount, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbors and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And He lives this out to the bitter end. Because He knew, as He testified, that the Son of Man had to suffer and be killed. He allowed Himself to be delivered over to death for our sins. Because redemption and forgiveness was only possible through His blood. See, as He hung there interceding for us, He he says they they didn't even know what they were doing. I'd ask the question, had they known what they were doing, would they have even stopped? I, I would say not likely. You see, because the unrepentant, the unregenerate heart has an innate hatred for the things of God. 
But yet, even in that hatred for the things of God, Isaiah said that he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. His words, the words of Christ, tell us that we are all in need of forgiveness. And that ignorance is no excuse. And that all humanity stands condemned before a holy, righteous, and pure God. And though He offers this forgiveness, you have to remember, and He offers it freely, it still has to be accepted by faith. See, Acts 10.43 says, everyone who believes in Him receives forgiveness. The forgiveness of sins through His name. You must receive that forgiveness by faith, by trust, and by belief in belief in that Jesus was who He said He was. That He was the way, the truth, and the life, and that no man comes to the Father except through Him. In His love, He offers forgiveness for everyone. I would tell you tonight that despite your life, no matter, no matter what you have done, there is no sin that cannot be forgiven. The passage goes on to tell us that some cast lots to divide his garments. They were gambling over his clothes. And the people stood by watching, but the rulers, they scoffed at him. And the soldiers mocked him, saying, if you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. I would tell you that his love compels him to forgive his offenders. And I want you to know that, that wherever you are in life, that whatever sin you might struggle with, be it lust, bitterness, addiction, indifference, materialism, complacency, know this tonight, that there is more grace and mercy in God than there is sin in you. And I would warn you though, that until you accept this sweet, life-giving, slave-freeing, peacemaking, overwhelmingly beautiful forgiveness of God. You stand as an enemy of God. And I would tell you, an enemy of God is not safe from the wrath of God. But if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that Christ raised Him from the dead, you too will be saved. You see, that afternoon there was at least one soldier who was complicit in the crucifixion. Much like you and I were complicit in the crucifixion, as we were not some, some uh, bystander that Christ pushed out of the way of the moving vehicle taking the impact that, that was meant for us. No, we were the one that pushed Christ in front of the moving vehicle. We were the one that, that flipped the switch. We were the one that pulled the trigger that gave the lethal injection. We were the ones that nailed Him to a cross. You see, but it, when it was all said and done, and the sky lay dark, one soldier would stand there and proclaim, truly, this man was the Son of God. I would ask you tonight, can you say that in your heart? Have you made that declaration? Christian, in the room, is your life evident of it? 
Will you be like the hymn says, one calling out among the scoffers? Or will you declare that Jesus, who bore our sin, who went to a cross willingly, who forgives freely, will you accept that forgiveness tonight and declare truly He is the Son of God? I'm Brian Borden. Hopefully some of you know who I am. I've been around here for a while. Um... I don't know if it was the age that I was raised in or just my household, but growing up, we didn't go out to eat very often or bring in fast food. Mom cooked. So when we did get a chance to get some fast food, my brother and I, we cherished that. It was good times. And then we get to have mom and dad trying to decide. Hi, mom. Hi, dad. We get to try to decide where we're going to get, where we're going to go, what we're going to get, and they'd go back and forth. They'd go back and say, "Well, how about hamburgers? No, no, that doesn't sound good. What about tacos? No, I don't feel like a taco tonight." Go back and forth, back and forth, until Mom's dreaded statement: "You know what? Why don't I just open up a can of soup?" <laughs> we went from Happy Meals. To soup that's been in a can for a year. <laughs> you know, sometimes our decisions, our non-decisions, become our decisions. The lack of a decision is a decision, and that's what we're going to talk about right now. We're here, we're celebrating Good Friday. We're celebrating what Jesus did on the cross. But Jesus wasn't alone when he was on the cross. There was two other men with him, one on each side. And these were criminals, thieves, highwaymen. These were men, they weren't petty thieves. It wasn't like a little pickpocket. These were men who used violent means to take what they wanted. To take what they wanted and leave you on the side of the highway to die. They were one on each side of Jesus. And this is probably a culmination of years of bad decisions that have led them there. Years of non-decisions. Non-decisions, just going along with the company that they were with. Going along with the people that they were associating with. But they had also probably heard, if not seen, Jesus. Probably had heard the rumors. How he had healed the sick. How he fed the thousands. Heard his, how he ate with men just like him. And, and how the, the teachings that he had, that he, he claims to be the Messiah. And some say he's God. They probably would have heard these things. Now they're on the cross. And we start off in, in, in Matthew and, and Mark, and we see that the authorities came to the cross where Jesus was at, and they began to mock Jesus. Began to say, he claims to be the Son of God. And they began to mock him. And both of the thieves, both of them, begin to ridicule him. They join in in ridiculing Jesus, mocking him. See, they decided that hanging from their cross, they had nothing better to do than to join in with the very authorities that put them there. Not making a decision based upon who Jesus is, but deciding that in their life, the the short part of their life they have left, they would go without making a decision, even in the presence of God. How many of us in the presence of God make no decision? 
See, a while later in Luke, we once again, the mocking begins. And one of the criminals says, are you not, are you not the Christ? Save yourself. And while you're at it, save us too. Hilarious, mocking God. But the other criminal, something's been happening to the other criminal. Something has changed. You see, the reality of the day, perhaps, or the reality of, of, the, of his whole life are coming, becoming very clear now. All the bad decisions, all the non-decisions of ignoring God's countless blessings, ignoring His countless graces, ignoring His countless pleas of warning. They were all coming to a point. And a decision had to be made. So he turns to the other criminal. He says, do you not fear God? We deserve to be here. But, but he's done nothing wrong. And he turns to Jesus and he says, he asks of Jesus, get this. He asks of Jesus something that only God could grant. Something that he couldn't earn as a criminal. Something that he couldn't steal as a criminal. Something that that he could not in all of his life have gained on his own. And he asked Jesus, he says, remember me when you come to your kingdom. Whose kingdom? Your kingdom. God's kingdom. See, I, I don't care what my friend over here thinks. I don't care what the authorities here think. It's just you and me now, God. Just you and me. And I've got nothing. I can bring nothing to this relationship. I need you. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. I'm in the presence of God and I will make a decision. I will make a decision because I believe that it is your kingdom. That you are the king. Friends, being in the presence of God demands a decision. It demands action. Even if that action is a cry for mercy. And Jesus in His pain and His suffering, taking on all of our sin, He says to the man, knowing his heart, He says, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Believers, it is so easy to see that this is a call to accept Christ as your Savior. But today, I am telling you, this message is for you, believer. Because every single day we face the exact same seen. Every time we open up His Word, every time we go to Him in prayer, every time we, have a, we go before Him or in His presence, we have a decision to make. See, in this book here, it tells me who He is. It tells me who I am. It tells me how much He loves me, how much He cares for me. It tells me how I should treat others. It tells me what it means to really be alive. So often I read this Word So often I read this word and I walk away after reading it with no decision made. No impact. No change. Being in the presence of God and it doesn't change me. Going in with the knowledge that that I have paradise and it's been assured to me by the man on the cross what he did for me. But instead, sometimes I just leave. I leave the word with nothing but soup that's been in a can for a year. Friends, today we are in the presence of God. And we need to decide 
that our tomorrow will reflect that. Thank you. Now let's get back to Stan Rivers. I swear I wasn't nervous until I see these guys sitting here looking at me on the front row here. <laughs> I wish I could just sing it, right? That'll help me out a lot better. Um, let's look at Luke 23, verse 46. It says, And when Jesus had cried with a loud voice, he said, Father, unto your hands I commend my spirit. And having said thus, he gave up the ghost. Let's look at the word commend for a, for a minute. Commend or commit. It means to entrust someone or something to. As in, I commend them to your care. Synonyms for this word include entrust, deliver, hand over, give, and assign. Um, when my wife became pregnant, she instantly became a mother. She was reading books and talking about it all the time and saying, come feel this baby kicking. I'm like, yeah, I feel it. I never actually felt it. Um, but she always wanted me to act like it, and I just played along. Um, so for the whole nine months, I played along thinking that she knows what she's doing. She'll tag me in whenever she needs me, but I got time to figure this out. Um, there was complications during the actual delivery. She was there for like 30 hours. I was asleep half the time, I don't really know. But she had the baby and she passed out. She was out probably a whole nother day, 25, 26 hours, just sleeping. So I'm sitting there in the chair and she's asleep. They take the baby out of the room. I'm okay, okay, this is over, I can relax. But then they do something strange. They bring the baby back into the room and they sit the baby there in some bottles and they leave. So, <laughs> so at this point I'm sitting here and I'm like, I realized that I didn't have the authority to give this baby back at this point. Um, this is something that I really wanted to do at this point, but I realized that I didn't have the authority to commend this baby back to Jesus. Um, so I did a lot of praying and I really found God that night, um, which was a wonderful thing for me. But if you look at this situation, at the culmination of this heroic series of events from betrayal to false arrest to ridicule and false accusations to um, this inhumane torture and mockery and trial and a beating so terrible that words could do no justice. Jesus cried out with a loud voice. He said, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. This display of power and humility is, is mind-blowing. As Jesus, who is, as Jesus is not, if Jesus is not who he says he is, then he would not have the authority to give or deliver his own spirits back to God. Here is Jesus not dying from his wounds, but freely laying down his life as a sacrifice. Jesus is not only fulfilling scripture, but he is the fulfillment of scripture himself. He told them, if we look back at John chapter 10, verse 17 and 18, that's John chapter 10, 17 and 18, he says, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me. You hear that? No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I, re I have received from my Father. Jesus could have said anything in this moment here on the cross. This last words he has here. But since in the beginning was the Word, and and the word was with God, and the word was God, Jesus decided to take this moment to speak scripture. 
he is actually quoting a psalm from David. Psalm 31 is actually titled, Into Your Hands I Commit My Spirit. In verse 5 it says, Into your hands I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God. So Jesus freely gives his life with God's words on his lips. And then he says, and, having, and then the word says, and having said thus, he gave up his ghost. This is Jesus relinquishing his life, laying it down, willingly sacrificing for you and I. I want to challenge you tonight to truly wrap your mind around the fact that Jesus was not killed on the cross, but sacrificed his life as the ultimate sacrifice for you and me. Drinking the full cup of God's wrath as atonement for the death sentence for my sin. We have to understand that it's our sin that put Jesus on the cross. It's my sin. Sin is disgusting to God, but not disgusting enough to us. And until we recognize that, the, that this was only necessary, this whole scene was only necessary because of the hatred and envy and gluttony in my own heart, we will, f- we will fall into this trap that we often see at this time of year that reduces what Christ did on the cross to colorful eggs and a temporary boost in church attendance. These words are not only the last words of the Savior. But if you look at it, it's also a description of how he lived his life. From the young boy in the synagogue to his selfless walk in ministry, he lived as though his entire life was committed to God. If only we could step out of the bed every morning and cry out, Father, into your hands, I commend this day. Father, into your hands, I give you my ministry. I give you my family. I turn over my job to you. Whatever it is that we're doing on a daily basis, if we can wake up and commend our spirits to God, then maybe we can walk a little bit like Christ, can move a little bit like Christ every single day. We can use that, those synonyms in that word and say, Father, into your hands, I, I entrust my spirit. Father, into your hands, I deliver my spirit. Father, into your hands, I assign my spirit to you. That's how I want to live my life. And I challenge you today to do the same thing. Don't let this just be words in a nice service. Don't walk out of here the same way you walked in here. Walk out of here committed every single day to understanding that it was our sin that put Jesus on the cross, and now we commend our spirits to him. Boy, what a privilege to be here tonight. It feels like a high and holy night, does it not? The Apostle Paul describes Jesus, as you recall in Colossians, the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. But here's what's strange. Mysteriously, Jesus was the firstborn son of Mary, her pride and her joy. And so as we come to this saying on the cross, you'll see Mary there with the youngest disciple, John, at this moment, and they are undoubtedly Standing in shock as Jesus is drenched in what would be at that time a naked robe of blood. So for Jesus at this point, let it be known that the simple act of speaking 
would have been more arduous and difficult than just giving up and dying. Because here's what Jesus had to do. In order to speak words, he had to flex his biceps and his back in order to hoist himself up along the splintered wood using the nails in his feet and his hands as leverage to pull himself up, expand his lungs to draw in air, giving him at this point the capacity to say the words He's about to say to John and Mary in John 19, 26 through 27. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. And he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. So I want you to know, to, to understand the gravity of what you're reading here, the gravity of Jesus' words, you actually need to understand the gravity of Mary's situation here at the cross. Over the 30 or so year period, as Jesus grew up from a baby boy into a grown man, what you'll find is that Mary's family life, her household, uh, began to unravel. If you read the Gospels, there's a character strangely missing. From the point of Jesus at 12 years old onward, there's this character going, where did he go? Where is he at? And that is, of course, Mary's husband, Joseph. We don't hear from him after Jesus' 12th birthday. It remains a mystery in the Gospels until you get to this point at the cross. It becomes clear here that Joseph has been dead. Mary has no husband. Therefore, as a woman in that ancient land of, of Israel, she would have had no one to protect her in her age, no one to care for her in her age. And as if that description I just gave you is not bad enough, she also had this emotional burden on her that all of her other sons and siblings had rejected Jesus as the Messiah. Up until this point, they had said, uh, Mary, uh, do not encourage Jesus. This will not end well. Don't encourage him. So the words echoing in Mary's ears at this point might have been, I told you so, from her unbelieving children. Now, ultimately, those same unbelieving children we know from Scripture would come to believe, praise God, in the resurrected Christ. But, but get this, at this point, for now, the family is torn apart. And so now here at the hill called Golgotha, her son Jesus is now being torn apart as the, as the body of Jesus is being crushed for our iniquities. Mary's soul is being crushed by anxieties. Years ago, as many of you know our story, I did watch something unfold that was difficult to watch. I watched as my wife draped herself over my son's hospital bed. Um, as he was seemingly close to death at the time due to the effects of cancer. And I remember listening to the heart of a mom just cry out, what will I do without my boy? That's Mary's cry. What am I going to do without my Jesus? Mary's dreams of a life here had been shattered. First by the death of her husband, discord among her children, and now here by the unbearable sight of her son, being hung naked from a wooden stake. And so, it's in this moment of Mary's deepest anxiety that Jesus looks at her, what, which by now would have been eyes 
uh, eyelids caked over in dry blood and dirt, looks at her. And in this moment, he sees Mary and he feels her sorrow. I want that to amaze us. Because if you've ever felt excruciating pain, you know that it begs to be attended to. It begs attention. Unbearable pain causes you only to think of it. And yet, in the agony of the cross, Jesus thinks of Mary. Compassion hemorrhaging from his heart. And so as Jesus bore the wrath of the righteous God of heaven, he was concerned for the daily well-being of Mary. As Jesus was blotting out your transgressions, he began to attend to the basic needs of his mom through his disciple John, one who had proven himself even faithful to this point. So hear this. Jesus is the image of the invisible God, which means when you see Jesus, you see Father God. With Jesus' words, we get a glimpse into the heart of God. And praise God for this. A God who not only loves us, so much that he would send his son to secure our eternity, but a God who loves us so much that he'd care about the details of our tomorrow. First Peter 5, 6 through 7 says, humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God so the proper time he may exalt you, casting your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Listen, it's right for us to dwell on the sacrifice of Christ on the cross, but, but listen, don't miss the purpose. It's to make us children of the Father. Christ becomes an object of God's wrath so that you could become an object of His compassionate care. You are not just a sinner fully pardoned. You're a beloved child fully embraced. God the Father cares for us down to the minutia of our daily life, like a loving parent who sits with their children at the dinner table, hoping to hear the little details of their life. So does God care for us, even in the small details of ours. So let me ask you this. What anxieties did you bring into this building tonight? I ask you, is it your job or maybe children or situation with your parents or disease or divorce or even dissension? In your home, hear me out. God the Father, cast all your sins on Christ so that you can cast all your cares on the Father. And I want to invite my brother, Trace Lavenderis, to come up and preach the word to us. Thank you, fellas. I appreciate that. Thanks, Pastor, for giving us the opportunity. It's a joy to be with you guys as well. And uh, this is this is challenging for many reasons. One, I have slight uh, ADD, and all these guys are provoking me to think on all sorts of passages and messages, and I, I'm sure I've forgotten mine. <laughs> and it's also challenging because uh, this is heavy to to really reflect and and zero in and zoom in on the death of Christ. It's heavy. I text Stan who I thought was my friend till this morning, I text him that I was really emotional all morning as I was eating my Chick-fil-A biscuit and just thinking about Christ and the crucifixion. And Stan told me to quit crying like a little baby. But tonight is heavy. John 19, 28, 29. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the Scripture might be fulfilled, said, I thirst. 
Now the vessel full of sour wine was sitting there, and they filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a hyssop, and put it to his mouth. As far as we know from the Scriptures, Jesus, the last time he had something to drink was at the Last Supper with the twelve disciples. We know that Jesus left that upper room and he went to the garden somewhere maybe around midnight. We know that in the garden, uh, Luke tells us that he was praying and he was filled with such emotional pain and uh, emotionally distraught that the Bible says that he began to sweat blood. Blood came out of his pores because the inside of him was being moved with such uh, anguish. You know, and you might remember that in the garden, uh, Judas came and betrayed Jesus with a kiss and the soldiers came. It was shortly after that that Jesus was transported all through the night. While he was being tried illegally and transported all through the night, uh, he was beaten sporadically and randomly. Then we know somewhere around eight in the morning, he was flogged. That This would have been by a professional torturer. He was flogged by uh, this thing called a flagellum, and it was a piece of wood, 14, 18 inches long, circular in shape, leather thongs, metal, and bones, and, and it would strap to his body and rip apart and rip out his skin. He was marked with a crown of thorns. Some say maybe three and a half inches would go into his scalp and into his forehead. And then he would carry the cross down the Via de la Rosa. And some say that this cross, this beam, maybe just one part of it could have weighed a hundred pounds or so. And he fell, you might remember. And they asked a gentleman to come and to help Jesus. And he gets his hands and his feet nailed to the cross. And he makes this statement, and all along this time, Jesus still, as far as we know in the Scriptures, had nothing to drink. They say that dying of thirst is one of the worst ways that you can die. And he goes all the way to 3 p.m., and through 3 p.m., he's faced with one of the biggest temptations of his life. See, when Jesus first went public with his ministry, he fights Satan or he's tempted by Satan 40 days and 40 nights. And at the end of his public ministry, he's also uh, tempted greatly because he's tempted just to get off of the cross. Remember when Jesus said he could call 12 legions of angels at any time? Jesus said he could have said this is it. The angels could have came, wiped everybody out, and he could have got down. Jesus was not murdered. Jesus willingly gave his life for you and for me. He willingly sacrificed himself. We know in Matthew, at somewhere around 9 a.m., he was offered this similar drink or, or, or very similar drink of, of sour wine with gal. This would have been uh, some type of wine vinegar, if you will. Don't have time to get into that. And, and Jesus uh, refused it around 9 a.m. This would have served maybe for uh, some type of way to be a numbing agent. And Jesus, around 9 a.m., he said, no, thank you, because Jesus willingly took on all the pain. He didn't want anything to numb his pain. He willingly took on this suffering for your sins and for my sins upon the cross of Calvary. Instead of a sip of a numbing agent, Jesus drank the full cup of the wrath of God. But here around 3 p.m., John says, Jesus said, I thirst. Here's why. Two reasons. One, to fulfill prophecy. That He would say that. That the Messiah would say that. And two, to get just enough 
fluid in his mouth so that he could usher out the last words on the cross of Calvary. I'll close with this. I, I, at first I thought uh, I drew the short straw, no pun intended, but there's so much research and, and there's so much background and I discovered this. I have a picture if we have it. I was very curious about verse 29. Where did this this stick and this sponge come from? And there's a lot of research. You can do it on your own. This would have been a Roman toilet. If you, in the Roman toilet, uh, you think we got bathroom issues today at Target, but in Roman days, in the first century, if you would sit, you would sit in the top. This was a public bathroom. Everybody just kind of come and hang out. And you would sit at the top. And then that bottom hole, uh, that second hole there, that keyhole there, uh, there would be a stick and a sponge. And there would be water, and then there would be a basin with an acidic wine similar to what was served up to Jesus. And what would happen uh, is that uh, while you, if you had to go number two at that moment, you would take this stick and this sponge, and, and you would stick it in that second hole to wipe yourself. And, and when you were done, because it was a public restroom, you would put it back in the acidic wine, the vinegar wine, so that it would cleanse itself for the next guy that would come so you wouldn't get an infection, although the bathrooms look like that. So it's, it's possible, it's possible, my friends, that when they offered Jesus this acidic wine that happened to be on a stick and a sponge, similar to that, that they offered Jesus modern-day toilet paper, Nasty, vulgar, disgusting, and needed to cover the nastiness, the vulgarness of my sins and of your sins. Great, incredible evening it has been already. And uh, I am, uh, gentlemen, I am honored. I am honored to stand alongside you as we serve together to proclaim the gospel to the region of this world that God has allowed us the privilege to do so. It is uh, not to be taken for granted, and this has been a great reminder tonight. In John's Gospel, chapter 19, verse 30, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. We all know people that are driven. We all know people that have goals ahead of them. They are systematically working throughout their lives to achieve those goals. They may even have them written down, maybe written on a piece of paper taped on a wall in their, in their room. I know college students that have done that. I know athletes that have done that. For athletes, the ultimate goal is to, is to win the championship. When I played basketball in college, we had painted over the exit of our locker room before we hit the before we actually made it to the, I, I don't like that thing, before we made it to the, uh, the, uh, the court, it said uh, uh, Kansas City on the, on the top of the wall. Now, we were an NAIA school, and NAIA schools, that's where their championship is every year. Uh, we never made it, but it was great to at least have a goal. For business leaders, it's the domination of the market, maybe, in their respective field. For others, it it can be a myriad of things, the comfortable lifestyle or a nice house, cars, kids in the right college, uh, maybe the perfect body or influence among others, whatever it may be. Those may be, or in some cases, maybe not, but they seem to be for most in their own understanding worthy goals. When we look at Christ's earthly narrative, it begins to become clear for us as in a cave in Bethlehem or in a stable in Bethlehem, 
30-something years prior to what we are celebrating this night, Mary and Joseph came together there, and, and Mary is with child, and they had been on a long journey from Nazareth to Bethlehem for the census. As you know that story, we celebrate every Christmas. Shepherds show up, angels declare this is more than just another birth. The baby that is born is the Son of God. He is God the Son, and He has been born in fulfillment of the prophecies of old. He has been born as part of God's ultimate plan to redeem those who bear the image of God. Those who are fallen and infected with the sin of this world going back to the debacle in the Garden of Eden. God's plan was played out in Bethlehem. That's plan A. There was no plan B. That plan did not shift. That plan played out fully to the moment that we celebrate this evening. Christ was born for a purpose. All that He had done, His childhood learning and teachings in the synagogues, the, that which He learned from the elders at the temple, the baptism by John the baptizer there in the Jordan River, the miracles, the walking on water, the healings, the bringing dead people back to life, giving sight to the blind, proclaiming the year of the Lord and the Gospel, that humble ride into the city on a donkey, that last Passover meal that He had had just previously that week with His disciples, and the willing walk before a people who would call for His death, all had been done for the glory of God and for the good, for the redemption of God's people. The brutality of the cross is on display. It has been expressed in numerous ways tonight. Blood pouring from His body. Dried blood caked up upon Him. Mixed with the dirt that is obviously on Him as well as He drags that crossbeam for a, uh, at least part of the way up to Golgotha, to Calvary at that moment. The clarity as we see this crucifixion is that this is no routine crucifixion. I was speaking with our junior hires at the Lakeside this Thursday, and I asked that group in that pre, uh, pre in that, that before school club, uh, how many people were crucified? Well, some of them said three. But then as we thought about it, they said, well, there were probably hundreds. Oh yeah, many had been crucified. There were a lot of crucifixions in the Roman era. But this one's different. This one's even different from the one that we see illustrated in what we spoke of tonight, of the two guys hanging one on each side. This is different. Jesus speaks words. He makes statements. Some are clear and some are a little confusing, at least especially to those that heard them. Then there's this. After Drace had mentioned, he receives this soured wine from his tormentors as you has described it on this stick, on a sponge attacked, attached to a, a stick. His parched mouth is moistened just a bit. Just enough for one final statement. It is finished. What is finished? All the work that the Father had sent Him to accomplish. He even said this in John chapter 4, verse 34. Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of Him who sent me and to accomplish His work. Understood throughout His entire life that Jesus, He has come to do the work of the Father. And He dies on a cross. Why? Why did He have to die? Why was this the plan? I mean, certainly we couldn't have come up with a better plan, right? But Jesus died because the penalty for sin is death. 
It always has been, it always will be. The Old Testament blood sacrifices are made as a payment for the sin. At this moment, Jesus fulfills his role as God's ultimate lamb. The shepherd become uh, the shepherd becomes the sheep and offers himself as sacrifice. The final one, the only one needed. Jesus dies because, as Paul wrote to the church in Rome, the wages of sin is death. Somebody has to die. Jesus, the only sinless one in history, pays the bill. He pays the bill that all of us owes. We all deserve to die, but he did so, so we don't have to. Just as the old hymn states, Jesus paid it all. It is the incredible gift of life that we celebrate this season of Easter, even though we come together to focus on the cross tonight, for we are not ashamed of the cross, we are not ashamed of the blood, but we acknowledge why it must happen, and it happens so that we can get to Sunday, so that we can celebrate the life that he's offered us. Jesus has offered us an incredible gift, the gift that is awaiting the repentance and reception of people, you and me and others, and there's nothing left for Christ to do. There is nothing left for Christ to do. And there is nothing that we can do to earn our way to heaven. Jesus did all the heavy lifting. He did all that was necessary. And when He had, compl- he had completed all that He had come to do, and as the Scripture says, He gave up His Spirit. And that reminds us that His death was voluntary. So on this Good Friday, we are reminded that all that Jesus came to do was done. Well and complete. It is finished. It is finished so that you and I may start. He died so that we could live. And so to speak, the ball's now in our court. What do we do with it? If you do not know this Jesus we speak of tonight... Maybe you came here for religious service. I hope you've received much more than that. Maybe in the midst of it all, God has reminded you that He has done all the work. Now you just have to receive it. Through repentance and surrender, life can be yours too. The rest of the story is celebrated on Sunday. But Easter for us is not that unique because we celebrate the resurrection every day. Father, I thank you as we have gathered here this evening, as we close out with a hymn, much like Jesus and his disciples closed out with hymns as they sang on their way to the Mount of Olives after that last supper, we sing tonight together. We sing worshiping you, focusing upon you. We can actually say tonight is a good Friday. Not because of the 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 descriptive blood and all that we've heard tonight that is so grotesque and so painful and so hurtful, but because of why it happened. And that it was a freely offered gift. Father, I pray that it never becomes routine for us. I pray that the crucifixion does overwhelm us when we dwell on it. But I also pray the resurrection overjoys us when we think of how your grace and your mercy have come to fruition. And I thank you that I know you and that one day I will be with my Lord in paradise and I pray that the truth of that statement made earlier tonight will be a testimony for many, if not all, in this room tonight. May we not leave tonight with things left undone that must be dealt with.